core church in North County. They are our sending church. Seven years ago, they launched us out of there. And so we thank God for the good works God did in them to birth this church. So you're like our father in some sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, let's welcome Jonathan here. And then before he preaches or opens God's word to us, Emily's going to read from our passage. John 6, verses 25 through 40. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Grace Church, and greetings I bring from Reservoir Church in Escondido. Um, They're worshiping this morning and praying for you, and we do have one of those, uh, I explained to Josh and to Tab, was it last week, two weeks ago, that we're kind of like the United Kingdom and in the United States, we have a special relationship. Um, And so, one that goes from mother to then like wounded you know, child that needs help. And so it's, it's been a great encouragement to our team of elders uh, to just be poured into by you guys here and to be prayed for. So we appreciate that. We love you deeply. We're on the same team and it's great to be doing kingdom work together in San Diego County. Um, why don't we pray before uh, we get going, ask the Lord for help, and then we'll dive into this beautiful text that was read this morning. So good and holy God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We get to understand who you are and what you declare of us by your revealed word in scripture. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us this morning to hear the truth that you would have for us, that Christ really is our bread of life, that he is that center, the the place of focus and belief that gives us eternal life. 
Lord, guide my words that I speak with clarity and open each of our hearts to hear this morning that you alone, Jesus, would be glorified in this place. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So in a world of wanting, only Jesus satisfies. I think that's what we'll see as we dive into this text. But I want us to think first about what it means to be a world of wanting. What it means to desire something more than that which we have. And this week, I don't, I don't know if you've experienced it in our cultural reality, but we had this phenomenon that was called Amazon Prime Day, right? Which is really two days, so it's like lying right on, on the top there. Any, anybody buy anything on Prime Day? Okay, four of you. That's good. You guys don't like a deal. Uh, but Amazon, just during those two days, it's reported they sold over 100,000 laptops, 200,000 televisions, 300,000 headphones, 350,000 luxury beauty products, and more than 1 million toys. It's like, aren't the, everything I listed toys already? So they, they sold over 175 million products in just two days. And it was the largest shopping event in Amazon's history. So it was a really big deal. It made billions upon billions of dollars. And at least for the four of you that said you, you bought something, if you were like me, um, even like we've got this family like cap on spending right now, so there's no new purchasing. But I even found myself like scrolling through all of the deals, just seeing if my family like needed something that was listed there. And I even caught my wife like trying to trick me. She's like, this thing we need is it's a Amazon Prime Day. And I'm like, nope, it doesn't say it's an Amazon Prime Day deal. We can't buy it yet. And I felt like a very loving husband in that moment. <laughs> but I found myself looking through it, and I, I wondered then as I processed what was going on and my desire to look for a good deal, was I really looking for something to essentially, what, complete me? to make me more happy, to fulfill some desire, some void in my life. Because I have plenty of things. I have great food. I have great technology. I have more than enough to survive. But it turns out that I, like you, am human. And humanity is hungry. We all long for something more, for the next big thing, the new item that is available. We desire as people. And that drives us then in just about every corner of our lives. In everything we do, it is based off in some form of desire of wanting more. And C.S. Lewis said of this reality, he said, I cannot find a cup of tea which is big enough or a book that is long enough. And for us, that might be like, I can't find a, a mug of coffee that is big enough or a book that is short enough. But then another scholar, Bertrand Russell, an author and philosopher, suggested that there are essentially four defining desires driving all of human behavior. I don't necessarily fully agree with them, but it's pretty insightful. He says there, the four are inquisitiveness, rivalry, vanity, and love of power. So we want to know more. We want to see more. So there's a, a drive to gain that. We want to be the best to beat out all of the competition, everyone else that we might be elevated above others. We care for self above all other things. And then we can, when we actually get the opportunity to be in charge, we try to keep that power 
at all costs. So looking at humanity, we can recognize that these are pretty consistent desires, even however good they might be shaped or spoken about. They drive us. And just because we have these desires does not mean, though, that they are in fact healthy or even what we're actually meant for in life. Because even the sense that we have enough can then become in vogue for us culturally and then maybe we go like Marie Kondo on our lives and we get rid of everything. Do you know who that is? Did you get that cultural? Okay, good. I just want to make sure. That was, that was like a laugh point. <laughs> and, and that stuff works like, and we're minimalist all of a sudden until we get hungry again. And the destructiveness of this hunger is not only a modern experience for us. But friends, this is actually the story of Scripture, of God wooing a hungry people to something better. And we see it boldly in John 6. This idea that in a world of wanting, only Jesus satisfies. Now, John 6 is the longest chapter in the New Testament. And it's probably uh, among the most vital sections of Scripture in my own life has shaped my theology. Some people say, or well, are you a Calvinist? And I'm like, no, I'm a John Sixist. But it is a text that is so full and so deep, so rich with value for us as followers of Christ. And it, it, it's, it's that way because it is just the untainted, real Jesus speaking to people who are following him, preaching of the kingdom. And so for our purposes this morning, we've taken a little smaller portion of this large chapter, and we're just going to scratch the surface of this great book and story and grab hold of essentially three major clues that hit us in our hunger that I think Jesus tells us or reveals to us that it might reshape our lives. So Three things, right? As a pastor, you have to have three points in a poem, but I don't have a poem this morning. Um, so maybe can you work on that? Get a poem for later, Josh. But, so the first idea from John 6, the section that we read is that Jesus will not be manipulated. Now, the, the, the crowd that is in the story here, maybe you caught it, or if you have your Bibles open to John 6, you can kind of track with it. They seem to have this insatiable appetite for more of what they have already experienced with Jesus, which essentially sounds good to us, like we should want more of what Jesus has done in our lives. But here in this story, that desire is actually going sideways for the people. And if we looked at what came before, before the text that was read this morning, uh, it's the truth that Passover was approaching. So people were generally preparing for one of the largest religious feasts with lots of activity to get ready and just a lot going on. And then Jesus is in the region of the Sea of Galilee and he's continuing his ministry that is essentially stuck pretty close to his home base. Uh, But the crowds are just getting bigger and bigger as he preaches on the coming kingdom of God and he does miracles, healing the sick and delivering people. And just the day before our section of scripture, he was preaching to what we think is upwards of 10,000 people when their tummies started to rumble in hunger. Now, there was no like Chick-fil-A semi you could call and serve a bunch of Christian chicken to people. 
So instead, the disciples go and they find this boy who had five loaves of barley and two fish. You know the story, right? And Jesus blesses it, and he breaks the bread, and then there was more than enough to feed all of the people, and there were even leftovers. And it was so miraculous that people in that moment, John says in the description, that they realized that Jesus was the prophet who had come into the world. So then they're excited, like this is the one preaching the kingdom, this is the prophet who has come, we are ready, and they plan to take him by force and make him king, like immediately, like we're going to get free lunch every day if this guy is president. So then Jesus, it's not his time yet for that sort of thing to happen, so he goes away to the mountain by himself. And then the disciples in the story eventually get in their bo- boats and they're, they're crossing the uh, sea and a storm comes upon them. And then, you know this story too, Jesus walks on water and then calms the storm. And so there are some really trippy miracles that are going on in John 6, some really profound things that are happening, proving who Jesus was. And that's what the miracles are meant. They are meant just to confirm that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah that had come to save his people. So then the crowds eagerly track him down. And so they all that next day get in boats and they come to the other side of the lake to Capernaum where Jesus is and they want more food. So that's what they ask for. That is their petition before him. And Jesus tells them that it isn't food that they should actually be worried about, that they should work for food that endures to eternal life. Saying, you don't need more of the bread and fish that you had yesterday, but you should work for food that actually endures to eternal life, that is more meaningful. He says, it's food which the Son of Man will give to you. So he, by saying the Son of Man, he's claiming his title as the Anointed One of God. But these are some savvy people, right? Like, This isn't their first rodeo with a miracle worker. So everyone knows that there's no such thing as a free lunch. Right? There always is a catch. So they want to then earn the bread. They They want to work for it. They ask them what they have to do to earn it. It turns out we're descendants of these people because we are hungry, but at the same time then we think that everything in life is supposed to be a transaction. If I can just earn something better, then I'm going to do it. If I can pay the price for getting to the next level of life, and if Jesus is God and I only think of him in this transactional way, we think that he can actually then be bought, that he can be lured into acting by our good behavior and our ingenuity or our generosity. And so it's this underlying expectation, this thing that sits below the surface in our lives that we think we have to pay in. And Jesus then shuts that down. It's the truth that we gain from reading the scriptures, all of the New Testament, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not in fact opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning, and the crowd cannot take that. He's saying, you just have to eat this bread that I'm going to give to you. And they don't see what is behind the signs. That They're meant to point to the reality that this is the Savior standing before him. They just want a free meal, and now they need a strategy or a roadmap to get it. So they say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Like, that's a... 
That's a fine question. Do you recognize that? Like, we might pray, well, God, what, what do I need to do to be doing your will? But they're asking that question because they want the free gift without understanding that it's free. So this is the age-old question of what more can I do to be satisfied? What can I do to please you and gain this? And to that question, Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Just believe. That this is the Son of Man, the soon and coming King, Emmanuel, God with us, proven by His miracles, heard in His teaching with authority. Just believe in Him. What relief this is meant to bring. Because rest of life, like spiritually, emotionally, is had here. The striving of life ceases in this moment, and all you have to do is believe. In him. But it's, it's not enough for the crowd. Like They hear Jesus say, just believe, and then they need another sign. They're like, well, do a miracle to prove it's true what you're saying to us. And that is the most ridiculous thing ever, right? These people just were fed. Like they had to recognize the number of people were there and that just some loaves of bread and a couple fish fed all of them. They'd seen the miracles of those who'd been sick for their whole lives, healed by Jesus, and yet they say, just one more miracle. Just prove that all we have to do is believe if you, you just feed us again. But Jesus won't be manipulated. He won't be lured into this lesser transactional faith of, if you do this, I'm going to do that. And they all here, they've had all the signs that are necessary to believe. They need Jesus and nothing more. And this is what he tells them. So Jesus is not, in fact, friends, for us as we read John 6 or the rest of Scripture. He's not a genie in the bottle where we can't help but see everything of life is this merit-based relationship and everything comes with a price, our relationships, our work, our politics, maybe even our religion. Jesus says that it isn't like that. That real life is not like that. And we here believe, and just like the crowd in John 6, we're like, prove it. There has to be something more. And Jesus says, I am all there is. So that's the second bit that we want to see, that Jesus is our bread. And the people try then at his response. I'm not going to do another miracle. You've seen everything you need to do. You just have to believe. They get historical on him and then they demand daily food as their forefathers had in the wilderness. And they bring up the great provision of the manna. And this is something that is fascinating that even Israel grumbled about when they first got it, right? But the crowd is using that gift to try to force Jesus to act. To that he says in verse 33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And here we have the very first I am statement from Jesus in John's gospel where he is claiming his divinity, his godness. He's saying that he is the manna. 
That radicalizes the way we read like the account in Numbers and Exodus of God giving the manna as sustenance daily to the people. And Jesus says, I am the bread that is from heaven. He's saying, here's your manna, I'm standing before you. And guys, this, this is weirdo Jesus, right? It's okay to feel that when you read that because here he claims to be the food that God gave in the wilderness, right? That's interesting. And then this daily portion of sustenance for them. And then he goes even further by telling them, not only am I the manna in the wilderness, the bread from heaven, but guess what? You have to eat me. It's fascinating here, though, that Jesus isn't talking so much about carbs. He's talking about eternity. He's saying that He himself is the daily portion, the sustenance for those that believe all that the Father gives to him. This is not some new religious rule or a ladder to climb. And those that come to him, he says, he will never cast out. Like, those are lines in the Bible that we should underline, that we should cling to because they're such good truths. While we try to live keeping up appearances, smiling when we're in pain, pretending like we have it all together, here in John 6, Jesus is saying that he is the one that maintains. He is the one that sustains us every day, that keeps us. He doesn't just stop there. Then he ratchets it up for the the crowd. He, he, He goes further. Like somebody should have talked to him about his messaging to soften things. He would have got more people. But in verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The crowd responds, and I think we should respond rightly too. How in the heck can he give us his flesh to eat? Then in verse 54 and onwards, he says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood... Imagine hearing that, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. What? I, I, now, I don't know if anybody has ever told you, like, to your face, eat me, right? But I bet it wasn't, like, a, a positive connotation that they were saying that. But here's Jesus saying, go ahead, eat my flesh. Like, you have to. If you want eternal life, here's the way. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. I can imagine being around this and just thinking to myself, well, this, this has to be a cult. At best, they're a, they're a group of cannibals, lunatics either way. And it's so confounding to the crowd and to us, if we're honest. And I don't, I don't blame the people for being confused when they hear Jesus say this. Because if we were there, maybe we'd respond in the same way, looking to each other. It's like, does he mean we should really like, consume him? Is that going to be a miracle, like the loaves and fishes? Because like, I think he's only enough for like 12 people, right? How gross is that? And we see then 
thankfully, the life of Jesus play out in his death on the cross, and then we gain this fuller view of what he's proclaiming to them of his flesh and his blood. And just as Israel failed to see the provision of the manna as enough in the wilderness, then, friends, we can see the provision of Christ as lacking in our lives. We still want the next thing and we don't recognize what has already been given to us in Jesus. Because we too readily seek satisfaction from the bread of this world, but Jesus offers himself as the meal of true and eternal satisfaction. And we need this bread because we are far too quick to eat poison. We're convinced by the marketing of our world and in the sickness of our own hearts that we need something more. Maybe we need the perfect job. We need to live in a, ba- a better neighborhood. Like I, I'd come into La Mesa, the jewel of the hills, and I live in Escondido. It's a hidden valley for a reason. Right? But... We, we look to all these other things to satisfy us, to give us meaning and identity in life. And they become these counterfeit gods for us, so central and essential to our life that should we lose it, our lives would feel hardly worth living. You can make your own list, and it's essentially we're creating idols in our lives. And I appreciate how Tim Keller describes an idol. He says, it's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, to give you what only God can give you. So even really good things then made ultimate things will leave us devastated and broken. And the crowd doesn't realize this, but we can as we read John 6. We think that spouses are going to be our identity or our fulfillment, maybe our provision. And so we identify that I'm married to this person. That's the most important thing. For some of us, it's our jobs. You know, that's the common question. Well, oh, what do you do when you meet someone? As if that defines who we are. Even thinking through our possessions that might spark joy in our life. Or getting rid of things that don't. It's all idolatry. Sex beyond the bounds of a marriage covenant. And in our day, even experience is quickly becoming a regular idol to pursue. This is not what Tab and his family are doing on vacation. But we think that everything's going to be solved if I just have the best vacation experience I can, the thrills that are available out there, the adventure that is surely just on the other side of a great Instagram profile. And they can all be then poison to our souls, some of them slowly lulling us to sleep and others bringing immediate wrenching death. And to this, to this reality and to us even today, Jesus offers himself as the bread of life. He says to have eternal life, to end spiritual hunger and longing, we are to believe in him and take him in like food. Like he is what we need to survive. Like he is the only thing that is true and worthwhile. Like he is the only thing that will satisfy us. James Boyce, uh, a pastor and writer, says, Is he as real to you spiritually as something you can taste and handle? Is he as much a part of you as that which you eat? Do you do not think me blasphemous when I say that he must be as real to you and as useful to you as a hamburger and french fries? 
I say this because although he's obviously far more real and useful than these, the unfortunate thing is that for many people he is much less. This is, friends, then the crazy that Christianity offers. Blood and flesh. Belief and eternal life. So what does it mean for us to consume Jesus now? I think it it means first like holding tightly to his righteousness, this life of perfection that he lived for us before God clinging to his sacrifice on the cross, that he would spend his flesh and blood for us in our place, making us favorable to God by taking on what we actually deserve for sin, clinging to the covering of his blood, that he paid our debt once and for all, that there is no more sacrifice, no more work that must be done, that past, present, and future sin and missing the mark is all covered and handled by his blood. And clinging to the ransom that Christ paid for us. That we are of such value to him that he suffered for us, even unto death. And clinging to his resurrection, this defeat of death, and the promise of new life that he gives us. Proof of his cosmic victory and power to reign over everything. Because when he is our bread, every then other temptation pales in comparison to the richness of this meal. We don't run to different schemes or to the latest of religion, to the varied thinking of humanity. We cling to Jesus and we don't go anywhere else. And hunger stops here. This is a meal worth giving our lives for and it is life, real, true life as it is meant to be. And I know temptations are going to come. Like I, I don't stand before you as some elevated holy man. I am someone just as in need of this bread of life as any of you. So we determine to go back to it over and over again, to cling to this righteousness, this gift of grace, this forgiveness offered to us in Christ. And as we do that, we see that life is actually found feasting on Christ. He says, whoever consumes Christ abides in him. He remains secure in him. He or she will have the life of Christ. They will really live and they will live forever. There will be an eternity of provision and relationship with God himself. This is what Jesus is declaring for the people who came to him hungry. The imagery here might be hard for us to swallow, but Jesus has actually meant the, met the hunger of humanity with himself. He says, I am the solution. Here it is. And this is what he's indicating in John 6, that we no longer need to run after those things that are just temporary fixes to solve our appetite, that he is actually the bread, the provision of life. The story goes on in verse 61 and it says, But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples, and it's careful that we know that when he says his disciples, that means the whole crowd, the hundreds of people that are there, were grumbling about this. And they said to him, Do you take offense? He said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to, were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. 
And then John adds, For Jesus knew that from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So people can't handle this word. And Jesus is like, well, does this offend you that you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood? Like, you're saying like, this is real God stuff. This is from the Spirit. This is where life is going to happen. But some of you don't believe. People can't handle that word, and then thousands leave. Like, everybody leaves because they don't believe. No one can come to Jesus unless it's granted by the Father, he says. And that doesn't seem to be the case then for a lot of the people in this crowd. Which is a, a terribly sad reality. Here's the Savior of the world offering himself to solve all of the hunger of these people. And they walk away from him. Only his most intimate followers remain. The twelve stay with him. And think of the magnitude of that. This is Jesus at the turning point of his ministry when things are going to get increasingly like influential and big. The crowds will continue to increase. He has just fed 10,000 people, even if just a portion of those people were in this conversation with him at this portion of John 6. You can't think, like, how many people that is. He says, eat me. And they walk away. And so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He has the words of life. And the disciples here are surrendering their hunger for real life in Christ. They probably at this moment do not fully realize the depth of goodness that lies within the words that they are saying at this moment. But they are all in with everything of their life because Jesus has the words of life. They stick close. They can't go after other things because he is all they need. And they're going to live lives that prove that out as we continue to read the New Testament. They'll get some of it wrong at parts and be corrected in other, but they will continue to give themselves away because only Jesus has the words of life. This is not just for the twelve. This is for us too. Later in, in John 10, Jesus will say, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So our satisfaction is Jesus and him alone. And friends, hopefully we recognize that hope is found here in the provision of Jesus. Redemption is found here. Transformation in life is found here. Community, family, the church is found here. Eternity is found here. Life is found here. Jesus, as the bread of life, sabotages any notion of legalism or performance-based acceptability with God that we might have. And the only thing we bring to Jesus is our need, our brokenness, our sinfulness. And what does he do? He provides. He gives himself. So when desire stirs, when the longing for the transactional faith rears its head, and we are tempted to think that there has to be more, 
we instead look to Christ and say, where else would I go? He has the words of eternal life. So in a world of wanting, only Jesus satisfies. He is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him shall not hunger, and whoever believes in him shall never thirst. So what do we do with this portion of John 6? How do we respond to it? And I think it's pretty clear what Jesus says we need to do in response to who he is. Believe. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So we repent and we believe. We turn from all of our hunger, all of your momentary appetites, your misplaced desires, and come for maybe the first time or come again to Jesus. Believe that He is actually the bread of life, that this isn't just some like nice metaphorical language here, but that He is truly the bread of life, that He gave up His flesh and His blood for you, for your forgiveness, forgiveness for your life. And then don't stop believing. Constantly go back to the one. And unlike the crowd going back and asking for the, the miracle of bread and fish that came before, go back asking for more of him and then feast on Christ. Friends, I encourage you to know nothing other than Christ crucified, your Savior keeping you for all of eternity. Reject every opportunity, that self-centered religiosity, and devour nothing but Jesus. Return to this table of grace over and over again in the Word as you study Scripture, in community among each other, in every nook and cranny of your life that you would have life in Jesus as your true satisfaction. Because there is an answer to our wanting, to our hunger for life, for something more. It is Jesus. Come. Here, Jesus' invitation as given to us by the prophet Isaiah. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love. Let's pray. Good and holy God, we thank you for the invitation that you have given us. This proclamation and this experienced reality that Jesus, you are the bread of life, that you are the only meal that truly satisfies. God, for us, life is a daily struggle of recognizing where the words of life are found. And we ask for your help, Holy Spirit, as we face temptation, as we face the desires of our culture and our own wickedness. You would invite us back again and again to this table of grace that is Jesus given for us that we would live this true and real life that you have for us. 
Because Jesus, only you satisfy. In your name, amen. Jonathan, thank you for preaching Christ and for pointing us to Jesus, the only one who truly satisfies. Certainly much good there that we can think on and that we can meditate on. One of the things you said, Jonathan, that struck me that I think is just so appropriate as we transition here to the Lord's Supper is that we recognize what has already been given to us in Jesus. And as we take the bread and the cup in the Lord's Supper, that is, that is exactly what we're doing. We are, we are recognizing, we are realizing, we are, we are taking hold of the good gifts that have already been given to us in Jesus, most notably Jesus himself. So I'm just 